Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Well, we're going to seek to find encouragement in the Psalms. That's what we're doing during the summer, seeking to find encouragement in the Psalms, and we're going to look to Psalm 8 this morning. In 1969, Apollo 11 carried a Goodwill disc with messages from 73 countries, and it was left on the moon in an aluminum case by Neil Armstrong and by uh, Buzz Aldridge. The top of the disc had an inscription, Goodwill messages from around the world brought to the moon by the astronauts of the Apollo 11. And on the rim, it said, from planet Earth, July 1969. The Vatican included a message in in those messages from those 73 countries. The Vatican included a message, and in their message is the text of Psalm 8. And so it is believed that Psalm 8 was, it definitely was the first uh, recording of God's word left on the moon. I don't know if there's been any since then, uh, but Psalm 8 is actually on the moon if the aliens ever come and find it. Psalm 8, verse 1. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. Because of your adversaries, you have established a stronghold from the mouths of children and nursing infants to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you remember him, the son of man that you look after him? You made him little less than the gods and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him Lord over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and the oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, birds in the sky, of the sky, fish of the sea, passing through the currents of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. On April 20th, 2013, Robert Galbraith, I think I'm pronouncing his name right, released a crime novel called Cuckoo's Calling. Barely sold any copies, about 500 copies. In fact, many of the store owners, uh, bookstore owners, especially in England, were thinking about pulling it from their shelves. But on July 14th, something happened that changed all of that. A news release was made, and Galbraith, it was announced, was a pseudonym for the real author of the book. The real author of the book was J.K. Rowling. And uh, she's the author, of course, of all the Harry Potter mysteries. When that announcement was made, uh, the sales of that book skyrocketed and rose to be a multi-best-seller book. The mere mention of Rawlings' name changed everything with regard to that book. A person's name can carry an awful lot of influence. It can carry authority and magnificence because it represents a certain person. In that case, it was J.K. Rowling, a person of, uh, of evidently skill and literary prowess. But today's name is the name of the Lord. And it also carries magnificence with it. Verse 8, I mean, Psalm 8 begins like this. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. Now, this, in, that, in that statement there, Lord, our Lord, the first use of the word Lord there is in the Hebrew, it would, be, it would be Yahweh. You may have heard that name. It is the name of, of God. It's the name of the one that we give the title to as God. Yahweh is the eternal God, the everlasting God, the creator of all things. I looked this up prior to the service because I wasn't even sure of it myself, but the, the word Yahweh 
comes from when Moses meets God at the burning bush there on uh, uh, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. I can't remember what mountain it is. But anyway, he meets God there. And when he asks God, he says, and God says, go back to Egypt and tell my people to leave there. And he says, well, what's your name? What do I tell? Who do I tell him has sent me? And God said, my name is I am. My name is the ever present one. And, and so when Moses goes there, he doesn't call, he doesn't say, I am, I'm sending you. He says, he, the one who is, he is, is the one who sent. And that's the word Yahweh. And that's where we get that word Yahweh from. The first word there is Yahweh. Yahweh, our Adonai, Yahweh, our God, the title God, how magnificent is your name. And his name is magnificent because he is the everlasting God, the creator of all things. Yahweh is the title or the name to which we give the title God. And, and we believe that Yahweh is ontologically different than us, right? You remember this, we talked about this not too long ago, but ontology has to do with our being. And this came from Nabil Qureshi, I believe. But Nabil Qureshi said that ontologically, we are one being and one person. If we're one being and more than one person, we're schizophrenic and there's a problem there, right? But God is one being, but he's three distinct persons at the same time. So God is, God is ontologically different. This creator being is one God, three persons. And we believe about Yahweh that he is eternal, that he's, he, he's not created. He is unique among all things that exist because he is the one being who has always existed and didn't have a beginning. Now, it's really hard for us to wrap our minds around that, isn't it? I mean, everything we know in the realm that God has created for us has a cause. We don't know anything without a cause. If we can't explain the cause, we chalk that up to the supernatural, or we say God is the cause behind that. Everything in the realm that God has created for us has a cause. So imagining a being without a cause, imagining a being who's just always existed, it really is hard for us to imagine that, but by title and by definition, that is who God is. He's always existed. He never had a beginning. And so he's the creator of everything that is, both spiritual and material. He created heavenly beings. We call them angels. The Bible also calls them Elohim, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, he created heavenly beings and he created earthly beings. He created some beings immortal and some beings he created mortal. But here's the point. Nothing exists that wasn't created by Yahweh. Nothing exists that wasn't created by the one true eternal God. He is the creator of everything that is. And because of that, his name, Yahweh, his name, or call him God if we want in our, with our English title, his name is magnificent and his name is majestic and marvelous in all the world. Now, Psalm 8 is one of the Psalms that King David wrote. They believe he probably wrote it when he was young, maybe a keeper of sheep. I think the thought is maybe he was laying out there on the pasture with his sheep at night, looking up at the, at the universe, at the cosmos, and seeing everything that he saw. And, and these words came to mind, the words of Psalm 8. But in Psalm 8, we're going to find four reasons why the name of God is so majestic in all the earth. And so I'm hoping that at the end of, of this talk, that you and I will be challenged, will be encouraged, will be inspired to, to love God more and to stand in awe of God. So let's, let's jump in. God's name is magnificent. Here's the first reason. God's name is magnificent because of the majesty of his creation. 
David begins by saying, God, you've put your majesty, your power, your awesomeness, your person on display in the universe. And so he says, you have covered the heavens with your majesty. Now, I don't know about you all, but when I begin to think about, when I begin to think about creation and what creation, you know, what, what it means, one, one of the verses that come to mind is, is Romans chapter 1. Verse 18, let me read it. You can just listen. But here's what, Rome, here's what Paul said in the book to the Romans. He says, for the wrath of God or the anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely God's eternal power, Yahweh's eternal power, his divine nature, and having it's clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. And verse 16 and verse 17, Paul talks about people who respond in faith to what God has revealed. But in verse 17, he specifically points to people who say, he says, they, re, they suppress the truth of God. Well, what is this, the truth that they suppress? And by the way, he says that they'll be condemned because they suppress the truth. But what is the truth that they suppress? Well, in the text he tells us there in Romans, he says they suppress the, the truth of the existence of God. They suppress his attributes of creativity and awesomeness and power. He says because they're visible in all the universe. In other words, everywhere you turn, everywhere you go, you see this evidence of this incredible God. He said, yet people in their unrighteousness, they suppress that truth. And so it's going to leave every man one day without excuse. In Psalm 19, David kind of says something similar to what he says in, in, uh, in Psalm 8. Definitely what I think Paul is saying in Romans 1. But here's what David says in Psalm 19. Listen, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming from his home. It rejoices like an athlete running its course. It rises from one end of the heavens and circles to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Now, Here's, here's what David says in Psalm 19. He says, the glory of God is seen in creation. And he says it's visible to every single person. Because God's creation is visible at night in the universe, in the cosmos, and it's visible every day in the rising of the sun in the east and the setting in its west. There isn't a place on the planet, though there's no words, there's no sound, David says, there's not a place on the planet where the glory of God is not on display for every man to see so that his existence is known, his power is seen, his creativity, his awesomeness is available to all of us to see it. It's not hidden from anyone, he says. So from the most cosmopolitan city to the darkest jungle village, God has made his person known. God has made his existence known. Twice in Psalm 14 and Psalm 51, the psalmist says, and I know one of these is David. I'm not sure both of them are David. But he says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 
Now, he doesn't say why the fool has said there is no God, but let me give you why I think the fool has said there is no God is because of the evidence that is so overwhelming. From the sun that comes up every morning and runs the course of the sky to the stars at night that circle the globe, he, or, or that are all around the globe, creation leaves no doubt to the glory of God. Creation leaves no doubt to the existence of God, to his power, to his invisible attributes. And so uh, this is what I think David means when he says, only the fool says there is no God. When I was building my house many, many years ago, Bought some property from, from Dick and Catherine, and, and, uh, and I, was, I was actually building my house. They put a trailer out there, and I was building my house, and I used to take my boys with me. I used to take my boys with me. Sorry. I used to take my boys with me. We would lay on the trampoline at night, head to head, Caleb, Ethan, Shep, and myself, and we would look up at the stars, and there was no ambient light. Lawrence Emily Emery, my closest neighbor, was down at the other end and there was trees in between us and you couldn't see his lights. And, and we would lay there and look at the stars and I would tell the boys because you could see the stars in a way that you cannot see them when you're in your yard where there's lights on. And I saw, we saw the universe and, and it would proclaim the glory of God in a way that, I'm telling you, you might, you might see this as kind of strange, but, but it, was, it was like I was seeing the universe for the first time because it was so dark out there. We didn't have electricity yet. It was just so dark out there. You could see the universe in a way that you don't see it when you're in a bunch of light. The universe is an incredible thing. The smallest thing in our universe is an atom. If you took all the space out between all the atoms... All, all, of, all of the material parts of us would fit in a sugar cube, they say. You follow that? If you took all the space in between, out of the atoms that make us up, and you put them all side by side, all of humanity would fit on a, in, a, in a sugar cube as far as the material stuff that makes us up. But I want to talk about the bigness of the universe because I think that's what David was referring to that day. The observable universe is 93 billion light years in diameter. They estimate it's 150 billion light years. And just for perspective, our Milky Way galaxy with its thousands of stars and solar systems, there's only 100,000 light years in diameter in our Milky Way galaxy. There are 150 billion light years, they estimate, in the entire universe. It would take endless generations just to somehow cross our galaxy, much less go from end to end in our universe. The earth is, the earth is not flat. I, I found out just yesterday, people still hold to a flat earth. If you hold to a flat earth, please see me afterwards. I'd like to talk to you, okay? But you know, the universe is flat. And by that, I mean it's not a sphere. I mean, I always think, I always thought the universe, I didn't know this, science teacher, the universe is not a sphere. The universe is laid out on a plane. So it is, it is spherical. It is, it is cylindrical, but it's, not, but it's not laid out like this as a globe. It's laid out flat like this. At least that's what um, those astronomers and all tell us. There's more, than a, there's more stars in the universe, we've all heard this, than grains of sand on all the beaches of the earth. There's at least a billion trillion. Outer space is silent. There's no noise there because sound doesn't travel in a vacuum. It's dark, except for the specks of light that we would see from planets and stars. Or I guess, you know, stars mainly. 
I'm using the word cosmos. You know why I'm using the word cosmos? Because cosmos actually means or implies that the universe, it's a way of viewing the universe as, as if it has an organized uh, system, an organized complex system. So when you use the word cosmos, from what I understand, you're implying that there is a, there is a system to all that we see in the universe. I like that. The opposite of cosmos would be chaos. We're living in a great moment in history. We're living in the day of the Hubble telescope. We're living in the day of the Webb telescope that just got launched here recently. And so I thought I would give you a little display of the glory of God. Put the first picture up there, would you please? So this is a cluster of countless galaxies in our universe. In other words, this is a picture. Evidently, all of those, the roundish things, those are galaxies like our Milky Way galaxy. And I, I meant to look it up, but I forgot to do so. How many galaxies there are in the universe? I guess they don't know, but it's probably in the millions. Is it in the millions, Chris? Do you remember? It's, I don't remember how many galaxies there are. Number two, this is one of those galaxies. See how it's laid out? This is another galaxy, the next one. This is called the Sombrero. If you know how to speak Spanish, sombrero is hat. So it's like the big Mexican hats, you know, they have the, the shades. Uh, they call that the sombrero um, galaxy. The next one is the antennae galaxy. These are all just scattered throughout our universe. And, and they're like the Milky Way, the, our galaxy in which we live. These are all pictures from the Hubble telescope. Here's Stephen's five galaxies. I, I guess some guy named Stephen found them. And uh, they're all uh, kind of near each other. This one's the Whirlpool Galaxy. I, yeah, I guess I know why they call it the Whirlpool Galaxy, right? But here's what's really cool about the Whirlpool Galaxy. You know what's at the center of the Whirlpool Galaxy? Zoom in on it. That's what they see when they zoom in on the center of the Whirlpool Galaxy. They call it gateway, the gateway to heaven. I, I read somewhere what it is exactly, but it looks like a cross, and people want to make something out of that. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe God put that cross there on purpose. I don't know. This is nebulous gas. A lot, of, a lot of the universe is gas, and I think this is either stars exploding or stars forming, but there's a lot of nebulous gas, and it's just, it's just beautiful. Here's a quasar forming. This is from the Webb telescope. This is from the new telescope that they just launched. I have absolutely no idea what a quasar is. It looks pretty, doesn't it? Now, here's, here's the thing that I want you to note, that nobody sees these things. Only God sees these things. Now, we're seeing some of them now with the Hubble telescope and all, but for countless generations, nobody saw these things but God. And for most of us, we see them in pictures, but we don't. Only God gets to see all of this beauty. People ridicule the affirmation that I'm making that God is the creator of all that. And they ridicule it for this reason. They say, why would God create such a big universe for such a puny group of people like us? Why would God do that? And uh, I think the answer is found in Psalm 8. I think God created this universe to tell us how majestic and how magnificent is his name. I think that's why God did it. Psalm 8 says, so the glory of God could be beheld by all of us. Number two, God's name is magnificent because of the majesty of his revelation. Verse 2, because of your adversaries, David said, you have established a stronghold from the mouths of children and nursing infants to silence the enemy and the avenger. So it's difficult to understand exactly what David means by that, but I'm going to suggest this is what I believe David meant. I think he meant that God, as great as he is, who could create the universe that we just saw pictures of and that we see every 
and every evening and every day when we walk outside. You know, the God who can create all of that is a God who can be recognized by children. It's a God that children can actually recognize and believe and understand and trust his existence. The, the, the message, the message uh, of God, the, the message of God's revelation that he exists and that he is an incredible God can be perceived even by little children. David quotes this psalm, Psalm 8, when he's coming into Jerusalem on the final week. You remember the story, right? He's coming in on the donkey and everybody's praising him and the Pharisees, make them stop, make them stop. And Jesus said, hey, if I make them stop, haven't you read that God has ordained praise out of the mouth uh, mouths of infants? They're just doing, these children are doing what God said they would do. They would recognize me. God's name is so magnificent in all the earth that even children can recognize him and they can praise him for who he is. A little girl was sitting on a plane next to a man drawing a picture and he asked her what she was drawing and she said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And he said to her, honey, no one knows what God looks like. And she said, well, they will in a minute. So God has ordained strength for himself in the praise and the faith and trust of little children. Another girl was taking, uh, talking to her teacher about whales and uh, at one discussion, at one point in the discussion, the teacher said, I'm sorry, honey, but whales can't swallow human beings. Their throats are not big enough. And uh, the little girl said, but ma'am, the whale swallowed Jonah. And she, the teacher kind of irritated, reiterated and said, no, a whale cannot swallow a human. It's physically impossible. And the little girl says, well, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. <laughs> and uh, the teacher said, what if Jonah is in heaven, isn't in heaven? And the, the teacher asked that question. The little girl said, well, then you can ask him, okay? <laughs> So God uses the faith of children to silence the atheist who in reality is a fool in his heart because he looks at the evidence and he rejects it. God's name is so magnificent because of the majesty of his love. Verse 3. When I observe your heaven, imagine David, and I know we're speculating, but imagine David laying in the pastures, hands under his head, looking at the stars. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man? What am I? Is basically what David is saying, that you remember me, the son of man, that you look after me. You made him little less than the gods and crowned him with glory and honor. As David contemplates the cosmos. And it's just a, it's just, and what David knew of the cosmos is so infinitesimal compared to what we know of the cosmos today, right? And he goes, man, God, this is amazing that you would know about us, that you would care about us, that you would have anything to do with us. And, and so David is basically saying, God, what is about us that you remember us, that, that you know us? You know, I'm, I'm getting old now and I have lots of tools that I've collected over the years. Uh, they're, they're filled in my sheds and my garage and Anne hates it. And uh, I got lots of them there everywhere, but you know what? I, I can't remember what I have. I don't remember where it is. When it comes time to use it, I don't even remember I have it. And that's just a little, that's a little bit of stuff that I have in a little bitty space. But God in his vast universe, he never forgets us. He never loses track of us. 
In fact, some of you might be really going through some tough stuff and you're really hurting and you think, God, where is God? Well, I want to tell you, man, God hasn't forgotten you. God hasn't. He knows all about you and he's not, he's not forgotten you. He cares about you. Cares about you, Clarence. Cares about you. He hasn't forgotten you. God looks after us. Jesus said this when he was walking the planet as God. Become one of us. This is what he said. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Then not one of them will fall to the ground apart from Yahweh, apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than the many sparrows. Jesus basically says God knows us because we're valuable. And we're valuable to God. Do you know that nothing, nothing in this life has inherent value? Its value comes by people ascribing to it, value to it. You follow me? In other words, nothing, gold, why would gold be valuable except that we say it's valuable, right? Or anything like that. Why is anything valuable to you or to me? It's because we ascribe value to it. We are valuable to God because God says I'm valuable, because God values you. Not because I'm inherently valuable, but because God values me. Paul said, Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not height, nor death, nor angels, rulers, nothing, not even death. Why? Because we're valuable to God. He loves us. David makes this incredible comment. He said, God made us little lower than, in the Hebrew, it's Elohim and it's plural. And Elohim is a word that we use for God, right? He, he doesn't, you know, I, translators try to, try to skim around this because David said, God made us, Yahweh made us a little lower than the Elohim, than the, than the gods, right? Plural, gods. The, the Elohim here are obviously some spiritually created beings that Yahweh made that God calls God, Yahweh, the God calls gods, little g if you would, or rulers. And, 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 and David says, God made us just slightly lower than them. Instead of human beings, made in the image of God, being slightly higher than the other animals, as evolutionists would say, David says, God said, we're a little bit lower than the Elohim, a little bit lower than the gods. When the Bible speaks of God creating us, he says he made us in his own image. We're valuable. God cares about us, but he, he, we're valuable because we're made in the image of God. Are the Elohim made in the image of God? I, I don't know. They probably are. They probably are. But as far as us in, 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 in this mortal material world, we are the ones that he made in his image. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that one day we will judge angels. We're going to judge spiritual beings at some level. We'll have responsibility over the angelic messengers of God. What is man? As insignificant as we are, why would God care about us? And the answer is, I believe, and this is David's question. I don't know that he answers his question. I'm going to answer it for him. It's because of the majesty of God's love for us. It's because God loves us. And it's incredible, isn't it? For God so loved the world. For God so loved. And I don't think he means the tierra. I don't think he means the, the earth. I think he, when he says he loves the world, I think he's talking about us. You know, the, the creatures of his world. He loves us. And that's why his name is so magnificent. Last one. God's name is so magnificent because of the majesty of his plan. Verse six. You made him, man, us, Lord over the works of your hands. 
You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, birds of the sky, fish of the sea, passing through the currents of the sea. The name of God is so magnificent in all the earth because he had a plan, and his plan was to make us, mankind, vice regents with him over his creation. We have dominion over this world. He made us stewards of this world for him. You know, I don't even know whether to go here or not. You know, the universe is so vast. What God has done in the rest of the universe, I mean, he doesn't tell us anything about it in the Bible, right? Uh, I don't know what he's done in all of those places. And there's not a lot of, as best we can tell from, from what little bit we can observe the universe or the cosmos, there's not planets like ours. There's not planets that sustain life like, like ours. So there is something unique and special about our planet. It's different. And here, the, the, David tells us, the, the Bible tells us that God made us the ruler over that planet. He, he gave dominion to it to us. His commission in the Garden of Eden was even, the Garden of Eden was to go and steward the earth, multiply. He said, fill the earth, tame it. We read in Genesis 2.15, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The words there are significant. The word work actually is the word to serve. The word to take care of means to guard, to protect. In other words, we're not to be this tyrannical leader, ruler over the world. We're to be a servant leader over the world. And the stewardship that we've been given is to be responsible for it. So there's two aspects to what God has called us to do. We're to rule the world as exercising dominion over it, but we are to be responsible for the world as well. I've told you this before, and I really honestly believe it. I don't get on my lawnmower that I don't think about this. But every time I cut my grass, and every time I fight back my woods with Roundup and with, uh, with my weed eater, and I pull back the poison ivy, I'm doing a little bit of Genesis chapter two. I'm taming the world. I'm, I'm exercising dominion over the earth. And you might think that's nothing, but I'm telling you, it, it's come to mean something. This is part of my commission and part of my responsibility. This is the, the, the earth that God has given me. I'm responsible for managing it, okay? Does that mean that we can do anything we want with creation? Does that mean it's just ours to just destroy or do anything we want? No, we're to manage it. We're to serve it. We have rulership, but we have responsibility over that. And here's where people go wrong. If you leave out um, rulership or responsibility, you're not going to fly with two wings of truth. You're going to be out of kilter, right? So if you leave out responsibility, you trash the world. You don't care about the world. You don't care about the oceans. You don't care about the reefs. You don't care about pollution. You don't care about the rainforest and, and the Amazon. If you throw away responsibility, then it doesn't matter what we do. We can do whatever we want. And you know, and I know that's where many, many, many of us as people are. You know, and let me just say us Westerners, but no, it's true anywhere, anywhere in the world I've ever been. It's always true. It's really true in India. I forgot. It's really true in India. It's true anywhere in the world. The garbage we throw out and don't care. Just drive down the road. Just walk down the road and look at how little we care about about our world, by how we trash it. And I know you're always thinking, that's not a big thing. It is a big thing. It's an indicator that we don't really, we're not taking our responsibility seriously to take care of, of the world. On the other hand, if we leave out rulership, then we get this view 
that, that man is the same as the rest of creation and the spotted tree frog is just as valuable as a human baby. Or worse yet, we begin to worship creation at some level. That's what happens when we, when we abandon rulership. So we have to fight with both of those. We, we don't worship the world or earth. We take care of the earth. And as a Christian, listen to me carefully. I think as a Christian, we should be, uh, of anybody, we should be on the forefront of wanting to care and exercise responsibility over our world. I think we should be the best environmentalist there are. What's an environmentalist? Here's an environmentalist. Someone who is concerned about and actions aimed at protecting the world. I think that's what we should do, guys, as believers in the Lord Jesus. We are responsible to exercise dominion over this world and to care for this world. And again, I know even as, I probably lost half of you with what I've said. I really have probably lost half of you with that. But that's only because you're reading through your filter. You're looking at what I'm saying through your own filter. So what I am saying to you is that what David is saying to us is that we are responsible for this, this world that God has given us. So let me end. Psalm, uh, the psalmist ends the, the psalm just the same way he began it. Yahweh, Lord our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout all the earth. And his name is so magnificent. And it's magnificent because of this incredible creation that he's made and placed us in. It's, it's, his name is magnificent because of this revelation he's given of himself to each one of us in our hearts so that even little children know that God exists and that he's worthy to be praised and worshiped. He's magnificent because of the majesty of his love and he's magnificent because of the majesty of his plan. He made us in his image and he gave us responsibility and stewardship and uh, rulership over this world. So if I could, I'd like to finish by just drawing a couple of applications from each of those points. One of them a personal application and one within yourself and one an application outside of yourself. So here's the first, uh, you know, what should we do with all of this? Here's the first thing. And this is internal, this is towards yourself. Contemplate the grandeur, contemplate the awesomeness of God's creation and of God himself. And what I mean by that is, say with David, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name in all the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. Contemplate God's creation. I mean, we get, we get to look at lots of pictures and that's really cool. But you know, when you're down at the Outer Banks in vacation, take a morning and get up really early like just before six o'clock and take your beach chair and go sit down on the beach. You'll be there with about 10 other people and watch the sun rise over the horizon and contemplate the awesomeness of God. If you go to the Niagara Falls and you stand there and you look at that, contemplate the, the incredibleness of God. Take your trampoline and take your little children outside. If you don't have a trampoline, just take a blanket and go lay on the ground outside where there's no lights and just sit there at night and contemplate the incredibleness of God. Amen. That's inside yourself. Outside yourself, I'd say apply it this way. Point other people to creation. Listen, we know Jesus saves us and he's our king. He's God become one of us. We all, that's why we've gathered here today. But don't be scared to point people to creation. Don't be scared to use creation as, a, as an introduction question to talk to people. Say, hey, man, what do you think about creation? How do you think it got here? Do you think there's a God who made it? I mean, just ask questions like that. And if they do say there's a God, 
Maybe you could ask a follow-up question. I mean, how do you think you get to know that? You think, can we know that God? No, just ask questions. Point people to creation. Why? Because creation points people to God. Here's my second. These are like four applications divided into two each. My second one would be, internally from, from the text, seek after the God you know exists. God established a stronghold from the mouths of children and nursing infants because he's put the knowledge of himself within us. King Solomon said that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And here's what I think that means. I think what he means is that every person, generally speaking, wants to live for eternity. Wants to live, doesn't want to die. Now get it, life can become so painful that people will take their life. I totally get that. I know that's true. But, but, but generally speaking, God has put eternity in our hearts. We want to live. And, and we know we can live because he's put within our hearts that there is this God. And we want to know this God. So when it comes to pleasing God, remember in the author of Hebrews says, to please God is how we do it. He says, you must have faith. And then he says, faith is believing that God exists because creation tells us that. And then it says, and seeking him. And so my application from this point would be seek the creator, everyone. For those of us who believe that Jesus is the creator, then seek the Lord, talk to him, read the book about him, read about Jesus' life, read about the things that he taught us. Seek him. You invest time in getting to know him. That would be an application, I think, from the psalm. And as an outward application, I would say, appeal to the reality of God in everybody's heart. Only the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And there's, there are people in the world that are fools. But generally speaking, most people are not fools. They would not say there is no God. But even people who aren't sure, they say, I'm not sure. They're not, they're not willing to say, I don't believe there's not a God. So appeal to people, to the reality of God's existence, which is in every man's heart. And if you doubt that, one of the evidences for the existence of God is the fact that every people group in the world worships Every people group worships. Everybody looks for God. Number three, from the third point, here's my personal application to you and me. Meditate on the truth that God loves you. And again, a lot of my applications from meditation are they're, they're think on these things, right? Think on the truth that God loves you. Psalm 8, verse 4, What is man that he, God, you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Don't forget that God loves you. Think about it. Meditate on it. Remember it. And then remember this, for those of us who know and love Jesus, remember this, it's not just love and creation. I mean, it gets much more personal than that. Jesus, God loves us because he be by becoming one of us so that we might really get to know him and touch him and, and know who he is and what God's like. And so remember the love of God in meditate, think on, stop. Remember that, especially, especially if you're being crushed under the weight of life. Remember, stop, meditate. I, I was sitting at my desk on this point and this, and this song by Josh Grogan came to mind. I don't even know if Josh Grogan is a Christian. I have no idea what the meaning of what he meant in his song, but he sings this song that as soon as I say the title, you'll know it. It's called, You Raise Me Up. And again, Josh may be a Christian. He may have meant this the way I want to give it to you, but this is the words of the, he only has one verse and he repeats the chorus over and over and over again. But this is what he says, when I am down and oh, my soul's so weary, when troubles come and my heart burden be, then I am still and wait here in the silence until you come and sit a while with me. 
You raise me up so I can stand on mountains. You raise me up to walk on stormy seas. I am strong when I am on your shoulders. You raise me up to be more than I can be. To me, that is, that is the picture of what I'm, I'm asking you to do. When I say meditate on the love of Jesus, I mean, he says, when I'm down and alone, I get by myself and you come and sit with me. Just meditate on the love of God, on the fact that God would love you and, and know you and know the numbers of hairs on your head and, or the lack thereof. And uh, he, uh, he knows you and he cares about you and he hasn't forgotten you and he will lift you up. And you'll, he'll, he'll be like the dad who carries his three-year-old son on his shoulders so his son can see. Paul said the love of Jesus controls us. When we meditate on his love, it's a guiding effect in our life. And for the outward application of this point, I would say direct people to the love of God in Jesus. Don't just direct them to creation. Direct them to creation. But then direct them to Jesus. Direct them to how God became one of us and how he loves us. And then the final thing is determine to exercise godly dominion over whatever has been entrusted to you. And here's where I'm, here's where I'm going to step on some of your toes. Take good care of what God has entrusted to you. Don't leave your stuff out to rust in the rain. Take care of what God has given, whether it's your car or your home. And listen, my desk, uh, this is preaching at Jimmy. I mean, go look at my desk and you say, I don't, he doesn't take very good care of his desk. No, he sure doesn't. So this is at me, but in, in this is, and go see some of how I organize stuff at home. It's just like my desk. So, but here's the application. I think we're to exercise dominion in the world. So take and rule over what God has given to you to steward. Rule over it as best you can. Treat it, treat it as God's entrusted possessions to you and exercise proper dominion and godly dominion over it. And then for the outward world, let's work together with others to be good stewards of the earth. Granted, I mean, we've got to fly with balance here. It's all I'm going to say. But folks, we should work to be good stewards uh, over our earth. And whatever that means, let's be, let's be responsible rulers and responsible, and let's be rulers and let's be responsible. Let's take care of our planet until Jesus comes and fixes the curse and takes away all that's wrong and makes it right. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.